Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Repopulating the Welsh landscape with culture and story and language is what I'm trying to do in the book. Longing to be a part of nature, yearning to escape the concrete jungle, even if just for a single day, It seems that we've all shared these feelings, especially heightened during the many lockdowns we've endured. But this desire is not as universal as you might think. For those who are surrounded by nature day in, day out, will they see nature's true face? In her English-language debut, Welsh writer Carol Lewis characterises this relationship with nature beautifully through her portrayal of the sea, Her stunning novel, Drift, moves between the Welsh coast and war-torn Syria to tell the unusual and captivating love story of Nefin and Hamza. The book really made me reflect on Wales and its place, not just in Great Britain, but the world. It's a country which sits so comfortably on the world stage that you could forget just how small and at times wild it is. In today's episode with Carol, we reflect on this and so much more. Chapter 1. A Powerful Duality Carol may be making her English language debut, but she's not a debutant by any stretch of the imagination. She's a highly acclaimed Welsh writer with multiple awards to her name. And that much is clear when reading Drift, I felt very much in safe hands. Her use of nature is stunning. She lives halfway up a mountain in mid-Wales on a farm in the middle of nowhere, yet surrounded by something extraordinary. And she draws on this closeness to the landscape through the character of the sea. Serving as more than a simple backdrop, the sea is an integral part of the story. And through it, Carol offers up a real sense of both nature's beauty and its destructiveness. Never in my Welsh novels also, I've never romanticised it. Because when you live and breathe it, you see the the darkness that's inherent in nature, the cruelty, the suffering, but also its immense beauty. I mean, it's just... um, And I think you have to acknowledge that. And I think what is interesting is that in the Welsh language literature, nature writing doesn't exist as a genre at all. And I think partly that's because... If you're living and working closer to nature, the hankering to get closer to it is not there. (laughs) And that perhaps gives you a greater clarity when looking at it, not to romanticise it in any way. Where I live is an incredibly special place because at the moment I'm sat halfway up a mountain, (laughs) but I'm also 15 minutes from the coast. You know, you can go from herding sheep with my husband on top of a mountain uh, at one minute and then you can be on the beach the next Um, so it's an incredible sense of living on the edge of something and feeling the power of the sea you know and I think also that a lot of the Welsh language communities have kind of pushed up towards the edges of Wales and in the novel I, I think the cottage clinging on to the cliff is symbolic in many ways of cultures that are on the brink um, for different reasons. And I think it's part, it's always been a part of the way that I write. I fall in love with places 
with textures of places, with the colours of places. And I've always brought them into the way my characters think and their moods and the way they move about in their world. So I couldn't separate them in the novel. It's just the way that I write. But, you know, we're in the middle of lambing at the moment and um, nature can be cruel. (laughs) And, you know, when you see those crows circling that lamb on the floor, you know, it's... It's part of of nature just as much as the beautiful spring flowers are. And um, I think recognising that duality and being close to that every day gives you a certain um, outlook on it. It's not just the cottage that's clinging on. That You know, the characters cling to each other. They become embroiled very, very quickly, Hamza and Nefen. They strike up this extraordinary re- relationship that happens, you know, very, very quickly. And it feels really authentically drawn. But the narrative of nature is one of clinging on, isn't it? It's on a it's on a sixpence for most of the time. I think most people's exposure to it is probably Sunday afternoon country file for people listening in the in, in the UK <laughs> yeah. when it does get the lambing season. You know, it is incredibly stressful. I mean, it is literally life and death in a you know in a single heartbeat. And I think it would be very easy for you to romanticize the landscape. But the fact that you haven't, I think, is is just beautiful because there is a destructive beauty about the way you write about the landscape. There has been destruction, particularly in Hamza's own existence and the fact that he's ended up where he's ended up, which you might argue is a place of refuge, but actually it's not. He has been ripped from his homeland. He has been dropped into this, well, for him, you know, I can only imagine what it would, what it would have been like for him. There is also something both claustrophobic and just very unsettling about the expanse of the ocean at the same time. It's both a thing of freedom, but also a sense of entrapment as well, because you can't go anywhere. It's almost it's overwhelming the extents of the of the ocean at times, isn't it? You really yeah. get the sense that this is a very small community and yet there is really no escape because of where it's situated and the constant backdrop of the military and the missiles and the guns and the soundscape of the of the ocean and what the military are, are doing in that. It's very, very unsettling at times. It's, I, I don't know how, how one thing can be so many things all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it is overwhelming, isn't it? And I think that overwhelm is what fragile cultures feel um and i think that's one one thing that small cultures can give to each other is a knowledge of fragility an understanding of fragility in in the face of overwhelm i think the sea in in the book is as you say it's a character um it's a place it's a symbol and it's an emotional symbol and it's a cultural symbol as well so um yeah, it's it's central to the shifting that happens in the book. I wondered if we could just spend a bit of time talking about the landscape and the, and the extent to which we as writers are conditioned. And are, I've heard you talk about writers being, we are all really, if, if, even if we're not writers, we're all products of our landscape and products of the area that we either grew up in or now inhabit. I, I guess you can't separate yourself from where you live and the environment that you that you inhabit that certainly comes through in the character of of Nefin to me Hamza 
is interesting because he is forced to inhabit a different landscape. He has been ripped from his homeland. He has been accused of doing certain things. And I won't get into the the intricacies of it because people can go and buy a book and read it for themselves. But he becomes a product of, of the landscape that he finds himself in. How much is the area of the world in which you live? How I guess you cannot separate yourself from it, can you? No. I mean, I began writing in the first place because I was brought up a lot by my grandmothers um, because my mother was a singer, a Welsh singer, and every weekend she'd be away somewhere. So I'd, I was always my grandmothers. And I began writing because I couldn't see them. They lived their lives entirely through the medium of Welsh, didn't speak much English ever. And I found um, they weren't represented in the books that I was reading, um, I couldn't see them. And that invisibility, you know, they'd given themselves to this culture. And that kind of invisibility stung a little bit. And then, you know, for me, folk tales, the, the stories they told me, the landscape around, the, you know, names associated with that landscape is in the fabric of my language and, and in the fabric of my writing. What I, I've always found interesting is that, you know, there are lots of books written about the wild emptiness of Wales, you know, the, the empty hills of Wales. There are so many books written about that. And those those hills aren't empty. To think those hills are empty is to be language blind, is to be culture blind, is to not see the stories that you know um my my husband farms a bit of a mountain near us here and you know we know every name pat stone on that mountain all the stories and i think that's a really a kind of outsider's gaze onto the welsh mountains so i find you know repopulating the welsh landscape with culture and story and language is what i'm also trying to do in in the book. Um, and it's important for me that the same invisibility that my grandmothers had within the Welsh language culture, that, that the Welsh culture as a whole isn't made invisible like that. Chapter two, writing is writing. The prevailing wisdom shared among writers is that you need to find your lane or find your niche and stick to it. That's how you're going to get noticed. That's how you'll carve out your identity. I wrestled with this idea when speaking to Carol because she's written across many different styles and genres, and she's found success in all of them. This is due in no small part to the fact that she's predominantly a Welsh language writer. Yes, the potential readership is smaller than if she were to write in English, but that's not a weakness. In fact, it seems there are actually many opportunities that arise from writing for a smaller audience. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, I think it's tempting to say that it's because if you want to make money as a writer, if you want to make a living as a writer, it makes sense in a small culture to write different things and go for different audiences um, and kind of spread your talents out in that way so that you can you can make a living because, you know, you're never going to order your Cartier watch uh, writing Welsh literature, you know. But I think it goes deeper Nor than that. English literature either. <laughs> <laughs> it goes deeper than that, I think. It begins with the Estevod culture. And the Estevod is a central 
thing in Welsh literature to, to, to know to those who don't know it's a competition that every school will have every year and there is a national eisteddfod as well that people compete in every year and my daughter now is actually in the cycle of the eisteddfod she has written poetry she has submitted a prose piece she's done art she is clog dancing and she is uh, in a choir and this is all happening this week and I think that is drilled into us at a very young age. And when you're talking the, the chair and the crown in the Estedwood, which are the main prizes that the Estedwood give for uh, uh, prose and poetry, you know, you will have a chaired bad judging it in primary school. <laughs> you know, you will have published writers read every piece the children write and give feedback. So there's a great respect around literature and the arts and then uh, as as you get older you you compete in the you know the adult eisteddfod and um and there's a there's a thing in welsh called a pethe which literally translated means uh, the things <laughs> but what it means is the arts so that if you're interested in a pethe you are interested in the arts plural you know and you are that is part of our culture you know and to be educated um you need to have an understanding of the things a so i think it goes deeper than actually just the um economic benefits of writing in different genres and of course we have a grant system in wales which is is fantastic the books council are amazing at picking out talent early on and giving them a little bit of money to write something, um, which helps with diversity of voice, of course, and um, it helps financially for people just starting out. So I think it's a mixture of things. I think it's a cultural thing and an economic thing. And I think it makes it, it it's fun because <laughs> uh, you're allowed to do different things. I think it allows you to explore what you can do, what you can't do, what you prefer to do. It makes you understand different audiences. It makes you a more nimble writer and a little bit less, well, it makes you a bit fearless in some ways. And of course, I brought this sensibility over to the English language, not realising that perhaps it was unusual. And then I had some feedback earlier on, well, who are you? What do you do? You know, what's your what's your thing well i've written picture books i also write on a i'm a lead writer on a crying series for bbc one wales and bbc four that's kind of sold in 60 countries i write novels and um i've written stage plays <laughs> you know a writer is a writer in wales and i think it's it's such um such an interesting thing to come up against I think and I think I was a bit bewildered to start off with but my agent is is fantastic at making sure that the messaging is clear around all your work and that it has its own distinctiveness but it, it is an interesting really interesting process. When you look at your body of work and you look at the work that you've done writing for children, for teens, for tweens, for adults, for young adults, and across different genres, different formats. If you just stand back and look at that and, and you reflect on your, your quote of writing is writing, it's true. You, you just need to reset mentally and emotionally in terms of the audience that you're writing for and the format that you're writing in. But they are 
to all intents and purposes, words on a page. And the skill is just simply in getting your head into the space that it needs to be for write, to write for that audience. I, I'm blown away by the fact that you do write for young adults because that is a pretty brutal audience that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's reading your work. You know, there will probably be no filter on the feedback that you'll, <laughs> that you'll get. And, and somebody might just put your book down and go, you know what, I'm not doing that. I don't think I'd be brave <laughs> enough to write for that audience. <laughs> but I mean, I think it, it gives you breathe. I think it's healthy as well for a writer in some ways because, you know, while you're writing, I don't know, the, the middle grade fiction, you let the adult novel percolate. So you're not sat there kind of with laser kind of pressure. What's the next adult novel? What's the next adult novel? What's the next? It gives you creative breathing space to, to put things in the back burner while you're working on different things. And, and, and it allows you to really, you know, explore what your likes and dislikes. Because, I, I mean, I love to write a stage play but I find them anxiety-inducing in a way that I don't find writing a novel. You know, I've always compared writing a stage play to wearing high heels, you know. It feels great. It can feel kind of really a bit kind of racy, but there's a high chance you fall on your ass, you know, whereas with um, a novel, it feels like, you know, wearing slippers. But it's, I feel, you know, having those experiences, knowing where your limits are, where they're not, actually surprising yourself sometimes or surprising yourself in a bad way sometimes. You know, these are all part of growth in a writer. Chapter three, upsetting the balance. As the human race continues to modernise, to increasingly spill over into what's left of the natural world, to dominate the landscape... Tensions begin to arise between the new and the old. In London, we rage about green spaces going, yet people need places to live. We rage against the traffic, yet we're outraged when the lorries haven't restocked our supermarket shelves. So how does this creeping sense of modernity influence Carol as a writer? And is she even aware of it? I'm acutely aware of it. Um, And there's always, there are new tensions and there, there, there are old tensions. I mean, a classic example recently has been, uh, there's been quite a lot of tension around changing the names of Welsh places and Welsh properties to English because people can't pronounce them or people don't like them. <laughs> but of course, that kind of cultural erasure is deeply troubling you know it's it's a kind of again it's coming into a landscape and speaking at that landscape rather than listening to it and taking part in it um which i think drift is is a big part of that because the book itself was instigated by going to a local village which is predominantly welsh speaking and um hearing a guy speaking Welsh with a really distinctive accent and then finding out that he was from Aleppo and brought his family to West Wales. And he was kind of free from any preconceptions around learning a minority language. He just went, well, we live here now. We learn the language. That's what you do. And he found the true value of learning a language in homemaking, in connecting him to the landscape, in making him kind of weave himself into the fabric of the place. 
And I thought that was fascinating, you know. But there's always tension. But, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about Wales is that it is so diverse. We are incredibly tolerant and we do move with the times. There is also a really damaging trope about being Welsh and Welsh language and being insular. And that is not the case at all because, you know, I look at my children and their friends and they have six languages between them, you know, but the common language that they speak every day is Welsh. Then they go uh, Spanish, we've got French, we've got (laughs) English, of course. So, you know, they are multicultural Welsh children. And I think it's no surprise that a lot of the Welsh-speaking areas in Wales voted to stay in the EU. So they voted against Brexit and because they feel that affinity with other small countries, other multilingual small countries. So, you know, there's, there's all this tension as a background, but I think it's respecting, you know, language and culture, but finding a way to move forward as well together is the, is the goal. <laughs> Your books have been translated from the Welsh language into something that I would be able to consume. I don't read Welsh. I love listening to it, but I don't read it. When you hold the translated work in your hands, and I ask this because I have a very personal example to share with you. My novels were translated into Spanish. In fact, they were published in Spanish before they were published in English. And I didn't like the first translation of the first book to the extent that we ended up actually getting involved in the translation of the second book because it was a deeply unsatisfactory experience. And I'll give you an example. I tried very, very hard through the writing process to only use the word said. He said, she said, they said, um, rather than they exclaimed, they shouted, they grilled, whatever, whatever you were, you know, whatever the adjective <laughs> would actually be. And in the translation, all of that got changed into the actual adjective. And I was deeply upset by that because that wasn't the intention. That wasn't how it was written. And it became very clear to me that actually the translation of the book is almost a different book. It's a different version of the story and maybe it needs to be a different version of the story but i learned a very valuable lesson which was that there is some form of democracy when you get into the translation process and that the translator wants almost to put their own stamp on your work which wasn't something that i'd been expecting you have considerably more experience of having had your work translated what is it like as a writer when you've written something in one language and you see it in another and it's different how does that how do you deal with that is that anxiety inducing is that a joy is that (laughs) is that all of all of the above I'm just I'd love to get your take on that Carol um I've always been um I I don't know if it's I know some writers some novelists find it difficult to work in a team and I've worked in teams a lot with Um, writing for television or for theatre where everything feels a bit more collaborative and I think I came to the translation of the novels after having done that so I was kind of used to letting people take ownership 
and letting them find a version of that book in another language. And it is difficult because obviously you have, <laughs> you feel so protective of the text. But I found the only way I could deal with it is to, to just take a step back and let that person bring to the work their style, their feelings. So, I mean, it is incredibly important to get the right person to translate the book as well and to make sure that there's a synergy between you. I knew Gwen had read a lot of my work. I knew as well that she wasn't, you know, it's one thing to translate a book as a job. I think when you translate a work from Welsh into English, you're not going to get paid very much. So, <laughs> I mean, translation is is woefully underfunded anyway. But um, at the same time, I think there was even less. So I think there was a lot of love there towards the book. And I think that's a great starting point where you have a synergy. They're very familiar with the work and they really like the work and are doing it because they have a motivation to bring that work to a wider audience. But I, yeah, I found it is... It is strange because you feel the work taking a step away from you, but I think that's what it almost needs to do. And in some ways, that's why I don't translate my own work because I think I'm too close to it. And I think, you know, getting that space in there and getting yourself busy with other work, I think is the, is, is the way forward. For me, anyway. But, you know, it's such a personal thing. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Carol Lewis for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? A writer is a writer in Wales, and that can be true for you, too. Try stepping outside of your lane. Kick off your slippers and slap on a pair of heels. Try writing in a different genre. Or for theatre instead of poetry. Or poetry instead of prose. Even if you hate it and go back to what you love, you'll learn a lot about yourself along the way. It's easy to romanticise nature or to define nature too narrowly, but we've learned from both Carol and also ultra-athlete Kaz Lander that Mother Nature is as cruel as she is beautiful. Many people have experienced its devastating capabilities, and for some, it can be a place of darkness, not of longing. Make sure you consider both sides of this coin in your writing. If you feel something close to your heart is sorely misunderstood, then use your writing to take ownership of the narrative. There are many, many books that talk about the empty hills of Wales. So Carol is using her writing to show why that couldn't be further from the truth. Write the stories you feel aren't being told. And finally, whether you're getting your book translated or just need some other form of help, make sure you partner with someone who cares as much about your work as you do. Find someone who buys into your vision. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you can, do pick up a copy of Carol's wonderful novel, Drift. It's released later this month. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. 
That's a wrap for Series 4. We already have big plans for the next series, so we'll be back very soon. In the meantime, you can keep up to date by following the show on your podcast app of choice. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 